All the time. <laughs> All the time. Is it on? Yep, it is. Okay. All right, good morning, everybody. Trevor and Leah are here from Kalamazoo. If, uh, if you don't know them, they got married this last fall on a blustery day down in uh, Benton Harbor, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was cool. So good to see you. Uh, I sent a little picture of our railing in our backyard and the trees covered with snow to my uh, daughter and some friends down in Florida, and they texted back that uh, they woke up. I, I said, this is what we woke up to this morning. They texted back, it's uh, 65 and sunny. It's a little cool for us down here. So, uh, yeah, I hope they survive. And then uh, I hope you don't hate us for this, but Lori and I are actually going to Florida on Tuesday. <laughs> it's our grandson's fifth birthday, so we're going to go down and celebrate with him. And uh, uh, we'll see his mom and dad as well, but we're really going down for him. But anyway, we are uh, in this series that Ben created, Some Assembly Required. I love that, uh, that title of the of the series, because there are lots of things God gives us, but then He expects us to do something about it. Uh, in fact, this topic today, evangelism, is something that directly relates to everybody in this room. You either have been evangelized or you are being evangelized right now, uh, and it just simply means that somebody is conveying their convictions, their beliefs, and trying to persuade you to fall in love with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any more complicated than that. In fact, when you go through the scriptures, you will find that there's not one example, let me say it again, not one example of anybody that became a Christian without another human being being involved in that whole process. God certainly got people's attention. God put things in their mind and on their heart but he always led them to somebody that was already a disciple of Jesus or he led a disciple to Jesus to somebody that was in that state. And this should tell us something about how important evangelism is because it's how we all get saved. Amen? I'm going to try this clicker. I got it right this time. Amen. God uh, loves everybody in this room. He loves everybody outside of this room. In fact, he loves everybody that's ever lived and that ever will live. But he also views them in one or two different states as the clicker falls apart. We'll hope, hopefully the, uh, the batteries will stay in. Otherwise, it's all on you, Connor. All right? Uh, God views everybody as either lost or saved. This can seem, especially in our modern society, in our culture, our, uh, the, the environment of our society right now, this can seem kind of narrow-minded and short-sighted, even harsh and judgmental. But if you read the Bible and base your decisions upon that, you will know that what I just said is absolutely true. There's a passage in uh, for, or 2 Peter chapter 3 about... Uh, people wondering about when is Jesus coming back and it says God is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish 
but everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then in uh, 2 Peter or 2 Timothy chapter 2, God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. These are just a couple passages that would indicate to us that this is exactly how God sees the world, either lost or saved, and that has to bring to bear something in us. There's two necessary terms if you're going to really grasp this and embrace it, and that is grace and mercy. You've heard these terms many, many times as you've read the Bible or even uh, just in life, uh, people being gracious or merciful. Uh, it's part of our judicial system, so to speak. Uh, grace is just simply an unmerited gift. So if I have salvation, it's not something that I've earned or worked for or even deserve. God can't be gracious if I've earned that for myself. And so all of us, we have been the recipients of grace because we realize that that salvation can only come from God. The other term, uh, similar to this, but slightly different, is mercy. It's withholding due punishment in its simplest form. God cannot be merciful if we don't deserve punishment. Uh, we don't have time to get into the whole mechanics of being lost and being saved, but we know from reading the scriptures that our sin is what separated us from God and put us in a lost state. The Bible describes us before we're converted as lost, as enemies of God, as people that do not belong to God, but then just the opposite happens when we respond to the good news or the gospel of Jesus. We get all of that and we get our sins forgiven. God is merciful to those that are saved because he's not holding us accountable for the sin that we have committed in the past, present, or even the sins that we commit in the future. Amen? Amen. This doesn't only happen at the point of conversion or the point of salvation. This happens throughout our entire lives. In fact, it's one of the greatest benefits of us being a Christian God is continually giving us things that we don't deserve and continually forgiving us of things that we do deserve punishment for. Uh, when we were baptized into Christ, when we went into the water and then we came back up after having made Jesus Lord, the Bible tells us in Acts 2 and other places that that's the point in time when our sins were forgiven. But not all of our sin happened before we were a Christian Let's just face it, I bet if you live long enough as a Christian, you've committed as much sin post-baptism as you did pre-baptism. Speaking as a 68-year-old man, I uh, would say that that's probably true. Uh, the types of sins are different, but a lot of times these sins of the character, the heart and the mind and things like that, these are the ones that we have to continually be forgiven of and repent of and everything else. This is a, a circuit. I don't know uh, if, if you know what that is, but that little lever thing, if you connect that, then there's a current that goes from one side to the other. Everybody has one like this in your house, many of them, light switches and things like that. But this kind of describes what evangelism is all about. 
We have on one side God, who desperately wants to connect to other people that we would consider family, friends, and strangers. That's what Lori and I were to a group of people that reached out to us when we were in Florida in 1981. We were just simply strangers, and somebody reached out to us, and we became friends after a period of time, but there was more to the story than just that. Then, as this lever gets pushed, this is the gospel being conveyed from God through people to you and me. And so for Lori and I, the people that ended up pushing that lever, disciples, were Dave and Teresa Vaughn. It started with a woman named Susan Hayflick, now her name's Susan McDuffie, still great friends of ours to this very day. But they're the ones that conveyed the gospel message to us. We had Bibles, we read our Bibles to some degree or another. We, like many people, didn't fully understand the Bible, and we certainly didn't understand the plan that God had to get people from lost to being saved. And it was through Dave and Teresa and Susan and a number of other people that pushed this lever down and taught us the gospel truth of how to become a Christian. And that happened in March of 1982. We've been benefiting from that evangelization of Tom and Lori all these decades. Uh, it's kind of strange to say decades, but it's true. <laughs> So, uh, I want us to look at a story in 2 Kings chapter 7, and we're going to spend a little bit of time right here in this chapter uh, of uh, 2 Kings. <clears throat> this is not about evangelism per se, but it is about the heart that everybody has to have in order to be evangelistic. Many of the times, the things that we are called to do by God are not necessarily found in a book, a chapter, or a verse, but the principles that God is nudging us towards are littered all over the pages of the Bible, and this being one, and I'll th I think you'll see as we uh, wrap it up in a little bit uh, how this all connects. The setting is in 2 Kings chapter 6, we won't read that. Israel is being disciplined by God. Their sin had led them to be punished. This is the same thing that's true for many of us. We found ourselves really being disciplined or punished by God. And it was the first time that our minds started to open up like, maybe I'm living wrong. Maybe I'm doing something that I shouldn't be doing. Maybe my whole focus and priority in life is off, and so I'm going to check God out. That happened for me in 1980 in California. I woke up one Saturday morning, and I don't know why, I was not a religious man, I grew up with a little bit of religion, but I woke up one Saturday morning and there was just this thing in my heart and in my mind that I had to get to the mall in Pomona, California and buy a Bible. Lori was freaked out by that whole process, but she didn't have anything to say against it, so she went along with me. 
We went to the mall and I bought a Bible and I started reading it. And it was the first time that I looked back on my life where God was really nudging me. We were, I think, looking back on it now, in a state of being disciplined by God. Some of the financial stuff that Ben talked about, we were looking for a couple of coins to rub together at times. Uh, our work conditions were horrible, and we were miserable living out there. We moved there, and it was bright and sunny. We lived at the base of Mount Baldy. You could, no pun intended there, but... Uh, uh, the, you could see from our window in our apartment the snow on the top, and, uh, and then just a couple months later, what we didn't realize, but every Californian realized, that all the smog from L.A. in the spring would blow up inland, hit Mount Baldy, and settle exactly where we lived in Upland, California. We were miserable. We were being disciplined by God. And so if you feel like maybe some of that is going on in your life, don't brush it off, don't ignore it, but ask yourself the question, is God maybe trying to get my attention by the things that I'm struggling with and working through in life right now? And so with this in mind, the city is under siege. The Israelites are literally being starved out to death. The enemy is surrounding the city. Nobody can get in, nobody can get out, and over a long period of time, all of a sudden, your supplies are gone, you're in a desperate situation, and we'll read about that in verse 1. Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. About this time tomorrow, a sea of flour will sell for a shekel, two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of the heavens, could this happen? You will see it with your own eyes, Elijah, or Elijah answered, but you will not eat any of it. This was a desperate time. People were wondering how long are they going to be able to make it? How long will they survive? And when we're in that state, we could have hope or we could, like this officer, have a whole bunch of doubt and look at things from a worldly perspective and say there is no way any of this is going to turn around. I, uh, I think about people that I've reached out to in the past, people that I'm reaching out to right now. And when I look at the conditions and I look at the hardness of the heart, I think there's no way they're going to be able to become a Christian. But yet, it is possible, as we'll find out a little bit later on. Verse 3. There were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, Why stay here until we die? If we say we will go into the city, the famine is there, and we will die. And if we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans and surrender. If they spare us, if we live. If they kill us, we die. And so they had reasoned this whole thing out. I got nothing to look forward to. I might as well take a chance. 
This is what trips up a lot of people that are being reached out to that start to study the Bible. They, they, they don't make a move, which these guys did in the very next verse. Verse 5. At dusk they got up, went to the camp of the Aramean. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the, in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. This simple little act of faith, realizing we've got nothing to lose, we might as well give it a try. God blessed that simple act of faith, not just for those four men with leprosy, but actually for an entire group of people that were being literally starved out. I remember when we were studied with, it was a little scary process. Because when you open up the Bible, you hear about all the good stuff. How good God is, how gracious He is, how merciful He is. But then you also hear some things that are challenging, kind of to the core. When you read passages like Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and many others that talk about how sinful you and I actually are in an unrepentant state, when we have not decided to follow Jesus, it gets a little scary. And then, when you read the call of the Scriptures to actually put your faith and your trust in Jesus, and not only that, but now you're to follow Jesus with all of your heart, to imitate the way that He thought, to imitate the way that He lived, to imitate how He interacted with people, And then you realize, man, I have no track record of ever doing this. The common question that a lot of people have before they become Christians is, can I do this? Can I actually live out what I'm reading in the Bible? And the answer is, you'll never know until you try. And God doesn't expect any of us to be perfect. We're going to have a lot of ups and downs. I read about even some of the greatest men in the Bible that were following God. They had their shortcomings from David sinning and Peter being a a knucklehead in his earlier life and uh, kind of working through some of that in his older life. You know, it just takes a step of faith to see if God will bless. And that's exactly what he did. Verse 8. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of the tents. They ate and drank and carried away silver and gold and clothes and went off and hid them. Then they returned and entered the tent and took some things from it and hid them also. They were being blessed by their act of faith. All of a sudden, now instead of the prospect of near death, Now they've been blessed. Food, clothing, finances. They got it made. They've got a whole camp of the Arameans 
all of themselves. And then we see that all of a sudden God starts working on their heart about other people. Verse 9. Then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let us go at once and report this to the royal palace. There's something about these men when they had seen how dramatically God had blessed their lives. They enjoyed it, but then there was a conscience that they had, a spiritual conscience, and they rationed that this is not right for us to enjoy all this good stuff to ourselves when our brothers and sisters back behind the gates are literally being starved out. And so God gave them a spirit of awareness about the sufferings of others and a desire that was put into their heart to share what God had given them so that other people might benefit from that. This is really the whole spirit and the heart of evangelism. For us to realize that we were once separated and now we're one with God. We were once enemies, and now we're family members with God. Our finances may not have changed when we got baptized, but we received everything that we really needed to be successful in life, which was forgiveness of sins and a hope for the future. And many of us are continuing to see how God blesses us long after that decision to make Jesus Lord. This same thing would be true for us if we don't share our faith, evangelize, spread the good news, try to help other people to be saved. It's like we're hoarding salvation for ourselves, but we're turning a blind eye to the lostness and suffering of family, friends, and strangers. I'm not on social media. I don't have a social media account. The closest thing I ever got to it and still have is email. <laughs> Number of years ago, I learned how to send a text. And then about two years ago, I figured out, hey, I keep getting these texts with these little figures on it. They're called emojis. And uh, I figured out how to send an emoji. And so uh, that's about the extent of my social media right there. I'm pretty proud of myself, actually. <laughs> then I, you know, I got advanced, and then I found that there's these little, these little mini clips. What do you call those? GIFs, yeah. I, somebody said, do you have a GIF? I, I, I said, yeah, I, I got a couple GIFs. I like woodworking, and <laughs> I like to preach, and, uh, you know, and, uh, no, the GIFs, those little. And then I started to add those from time to time. Like, I'm way up there, just so you know. I've never posted a like or a dislike. I've never retweeted or twitted. I've never commented 
on another post that somebody else made. And, uh, but I hear about a lot of this stuff from a lot of different people. Did you hear about what so-and-so posted? I said, no, because I have no way of knowing what that is. So my knowledge of what people post and project, what they evangelize, is only from hearsay from other people. But I do know enough in talking with other people and listening to other people that a lot of what we promote in our social media environment has literally nothing to do about God at all. Nothing. Some of that is innocuous. Like Lori will look on our daughter's Facebook page and we see uh, pictures and little video clips of our grandson. It's great use of it. But I wonder how many likes and dislikes, how many reposting and commenting we make, and then if we compare that to the amount of spiritual content that we put out there on social media, it's like almost non-existent. Technology is neither good or evil, it just is. What we do with it determines whether it's good or evil. In my opinion, and take it, this is coming from somebody that has no social media account, from what I hear, most of it is evil at the worst and innocuous at the very best. People that we follow on Facebook, people that we follow on podcasts and things like that, are these spiritual people? Is there anything about their lives that promotes Jesus Christ? They might say some catchy things and stand for some things that we might feel passionate about, but are they even spiritual? Are they about Jesus? Are they about the gospel? Are they about God himself? I would just ask you to take a look at your social media accounts and evaluate yourself. What am I evangelizing? What am I promoting? Because the whole world sees whatever you put on there, except me, because I don't have any. <laughs> I'll only hear about it later on. These men knew that they had to share what they had with others or God would not be pleased. They go back to the camp, and then we see the other side of this, not the four lepers, but the others that receive the good news. And in verse 12, it says, The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. They know we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide in the countryside thinking they will surely come out and then we will take them alive and get, the, get into the city. One of his officers answered, Have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here. Yes, they, only, they will only be like uh, all these Israelites who are doomed, so let us send them out and find out what happened. 
A lot of times, good news is not automatically embraced. Sometimes it's met with suspicion. This happens quite often, especially with young Christians. You become a Christian, you're excited about what you discovered, you're wanting to share with other people what you discovered, and people are suspicious. Like, what happened to you? You must have been brainwashed or something. Well, you were, but it was with the Word of God. Amen? And they're reluctant because they think, ah, you've been through so many phases in your life, this is just another one of those things. They'll outgrow it. They'll be back to their old self. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's how my parents thought I was back in those days. How some of my friends thought I was and so many others. Suspicion is always going to be a part of us evangelizing. Not everybody's going to like it. Not everybody's going to follow it. Not everybody's going to embrace it. In fact, quite the opposite will happen at times. People will laugh at you and mock you, insult you. Sounds like a lot of what happened to Jesus, doesn't it? And so it shouldn't be surprising that if we share this good news about God and about salvation, that others will receive it with suspicion, but we cannot let that dissuade us from sharing the good news of what God is all about. Verse 14, so they selected two chariots with their horses, and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what has happened. They followed them as far as the Jordan, and they found the whole road strewn with the clothing and equipment of the Arameans uh, that the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a sea of flour sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley sold for a shekel, just as the Lord had said. These four men are some of the most, in society, socially outcast, disgusting individuals because of the condition that they were living with, this leprosy. They were not allowed to be a part of the camp for fear that they would contaminate others. They were viewed as second-class citizens at best. And yet, because of their faith and their desperation, they received the blessings of God, and then they were also able to bless others. <clears throat> the lessons we should learn from this as well is, uh, well, that didn't quite come up. Well, all those things, they were all supposed to be together there. Ben, did you? Uh, Sorry. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's what, uh, that's, <laughs> that's what the four lepers discovered, that there was desperation, 
There was an act of faith. There was the blessing and this desire to share with others what they had received. The other people that heard this and had a chance to see it, they also had a similar response, but it was met with suspicion and uh, what does that say right there? Cautious act of faith and uh, blessing. But then some of them also died as you read the rest of the story. Here's what I want to say in closing. One, the methods of evangelism are vast and many. You read through the Bible, there's lots of ways that people became Christians. Some miraculous, some you go, whoa, I can't even believe that happened. Uh, We can talk about methods. I've door knocked, I've made phone calls, I've gone to people's houses, I preached on subway stations and platforms, Uh, we've had people in our homes, we've prayed for people, we serve people, there's all kinds of different ways. Sometimes just living a godly life is attracting to those on the outside. There's no one right way to do it, and no, well, maybe there's some wrong ways, (laughs) but there's no one right way to do it. Methods can be taught. I don't even want us to think about methods at this point. I want us to think about the heart that we must acquire in order to even have the desire to evangelize, let alone be effective at it. I've found over the years of being in the ministry, being in a lot of different places in the country and the world, a lot of different churches, that evangelism takes place when people are genuinely joyful and thankful for the life that God has blessed them with. And when that's not the case, then a lot of times people and churches just kind of clam up and they're not real outwardly focused. They're thinking more about themselves, more about what they don't have, picking out critical things about people or the church. And so they keep that to themselves, but they don't share the way that God has blessed them. I would say that whatever is preventing you from being joyful and grateful, those are the things that you have to address in your life. When I have not been happy, joyful, feeling grateful, it's usually because Lori and I have been on different pages. Sin, faithlessness, discouragement, But as I've opened up about those things with some of my close friends and we're able to talk through, study through, pray through and get on the other side of that, it's amazing how free your mouth is at that point. How much your heart changes and how much you want to pass on this unbelievable gift of being a disciple. And I'll leave you with that. Thank you, bro. Amen.